Thanks for downloading show 50 of the C-Suite podcast. Quite a milestone and uh, one that I'm thrilled to say is being sponsored by Fleischmann Hillard Fishburne as I'm recording this episode in their offices in Bankside, London to discuss the latest release of their Authenticity Gap report. I'm Russell Goldsmith and later in the show I'll be speaking with Nick Andrews, the uh, agency's EMEA reputation management lead who has pulled uh, this report together with Steph Bailey, their managing director for corporate communications. And we'll also be joined by Simon English, uh, the senior city correspondent for the London Evening Standard. But to kick things off, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Jim Donaldson, FHF's CEO for the UK and Middle East. Welcome to the C-Suite Podcast, Jim. Hi, great to be here. Good stuff. Uh, now, for those listeners who may not be aware of the uh, previous releases of your report, let's start with the obvious questions. Uh, what is the authenticity gap and why is this report so important to your business? It's a very good question. I mean, maybe if I just rewind a, a, a little bit. So there's been a lot of work into reputation and why reputation is important. There's also been a lot of discussion about authentic reputations or businesses behaving in an authentic way. Yeah. And and it's part of who Fleischmann Hill are globally and, and here at Fleischmann Hill Fishburne in London, the sort of big part of our belief in, is, is um, that our clients need to be authentic in the way that they communicate. So it's sort of on the, from that background that since 2013 we've been doing this report and it's really it's it's a it's a piece of, of research unlike any other I think in our industry so a lot of surveys go out and they ask people what their experience of a company or a product might be and this survey does something more important than that it, it, it still asks them what their experience is but also what their expectation is of the way a company should behave. So what we've done is we've taken the nine drivers of reputation, which people will be very familiar with, um, because it's the stuff that's been researched for for many years. So whether it's uh, the environment or customer care or value or whatever, it's taken those nine drivers and we've said to thousands of consumers across five different markets, of which the UK is one, and they're in what we call engaged consumers. They're not, they're, they're carefully selected. They're not, they're not uninformed consumers. They're properly engaged consumers. And we've said to them, what is your expectation about a, a particular group of companies in a particular sector? And we've looked at a whole range of different sectors, tech, automotive, and so on, and said, what is your expectation of the way they should behave across those nine drivers? And what's your experience of how they should behave and we've plotted those both as an industry level and at a company level and in effect what we're saying is that the authenticity gap is the gap between the experience and the expectation and what that does is it allows us to analyze both from an industry perspective where an opportunity might be for a client to communicate in a different way or behave in a different way um, and also what some of the interesting things might be um, to differentiate yourself in a particular sector, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. And, and I know today we're, I'm going to be talking through with, with your colleagues later about the, the results from the UK findings, sure. but it's not just the UK, is it? You've done this in a few different regions. done in the US, China, Germany, Canada and, and the UK. So this is the third iteration of it. We started right. it in 2013. We don't do it every year in part because we, we think things change quite dramatically. So we, we do it every 18 months or so, and this is the third iteration of it. And in terms of those main names... I know you just talked through some of the sort of like the background to it. What, mm. what, what do you think is the main aim for any client that's going to be reading this? So I think it's two or three things. I think it's understanding what your customers are looking for and whether you are meeting those expectations and if so, what you should do about it. I think that's yeah. at the core of it. But also where communications 
fits in. I, I, I mean, I know you're talking to the guys later about it. There's one really good example for me, which is the automotive sector, just mm. because it's so universal, everyone will un- understand it. Um, and if you look at the some of the stuff around the drivers in the automotive sector, for example, the care of the environment measure for the automotive sector, the expectation massively outweighs what the automotive sector is doing. So whilst the car companies of of the world and the car companies in the UK may feel that they are communicating on environmental issues, they're not meeting the expectations of their customers. Mm. So actually they need to rethink what they're doing in that space, for example. So a lot of what we do in our industry, as, as you'll know from your background, Russell, is based on conjecture. And what's really valuable about this is it's data-driven, it's real. We're asking real people what they think. Gives you a a benchmark that you can then compare um, against and and actually measure the progress that you're making. So how you differentiate yourself, are you meeting your customers' expectations and basing it on true data? And I think there's very few pieces of research in the comms business that actually do that. You you picked up on one of the things that that actually I was was going to mention in terms of customer care and care sure. of the environment which yeah. were two two of the um the key drivers that i found when i i actually read through the report all of it well believe done. it or not and um yeah I would, you know that those were two things that kind of there were huge gaps i think yeah. that, that sort of like highlighted not yeah. just across automotive but across yes. a lot of the industries yeah. so what i was going to ask you is when it comes to communicating credibly what can be achieved by closing those gaps when you're talking to the you know the leaders at these organizations well, uh, you know, I think one one of the things that occurs to me constantly in this business is is how you need to be as consistent and sometimes even as repetitive um, as possible. I and mean, we've we've all been working with clients for many years where we talk about messaging, um, and now we've moved into the area of sort of authentic storytelling beyond pure um, message delivery. But just going out and saying the messages once isn't good enough and sometimes uh, clients are still amazed by how you need to repeat things over and over again before they actually resonate with people so actually being reminded that some of the things that you think you've talked about a lot um, and you think that people would recognize you your company your sector is delivering on um, and those things actually not um, meeting the expectations of of punters is, is really important and you know the converse side of that i think you're right that's where a lot of the gaps exist in Mm. terms of um environment and so on but conversely you may be talking about lots of things on a consistent basis that your customers don't care as much about don't have such high expectations so maybe you should be balancing things a little bit more and and, um for, for me that's what i would draw from it as as a client and how we advise our clients is to say well what are you going to do in that space that both is different to what the industry is doing, but also is something that will consistently get that message across to your customers out in the marketplace because they're expecting it and you're not delivering it. Yeah, just just out of interest, I I know it's not an area that that, um, you've done the research on, but from your own personal experience, because obviously you cover UK and Middle East, what's been your experience in terms of that expectation and and gap in terms of delivery in in the different uh, regions that you've worked across? So uh, I think that some of the, the the changes I have seen is, and this is actually very true in the Middle East, that the corporate brand is vitally important. And, and 
you think in many ways that Western societies are, are sort of driven a lot by the reputation of a P&G or whoever it might be, but it's all the research says it's it's exponentially more important in in the developing markets, partly due to counterfeiting and, and some of those other issues out there. So. It, I can only see that increasing. It's been a trend I've seen and that I was certainly the, the work I do in the Middle East about how important building really strong and authentic reputations is. It, it, it's something that I can only see getting um, more and more uh, important as, as sophistication and communication and tools and channels increase. Um, and if you look at them, the middle, one of the interesting things about the Middle East um, is how social media has in effect brought democracy in the broadest sense to the region in a way it's given people voices that they've never been able to have before and um, uh, you know they're the, the largest per capita consumers of social media in the world um, out there but also that that applies to the corporate world as well so people are able to comment a lot more than they ever have done before and they're, they're taking up that opportunity in very very large numbers sure, sure. so it's it's very it's i mean it's why i get out of bed in the morning it's very interesting <laughs> i mean it, it just how um corporate reputation influences people's um purchasing habits i think is fascinating and yeah. it's it's universal globally and it's as I said increasingly important in in some of these fast-growing economies excellent interesting but bringing it back to the uk then sure. and and uh, what we're talking about today with this report what what's the uh the, i suppose your key message to companies who are going to be reading through this seeing those gaps in those industries how, how do they go about achieving closing it well First of all, understand the data. So use this data maybe in, in concert with data that you have about your own business and some of the stuff that's coming into into your data pool. And from that, really give yourself a sense of where your communications program is, is creating cut through, where perhaps you need to adjust what you're doing, adjust the, the messaging and the storytelling. Look at um, the credibility of um, the people that you're asking to deliver your message. One of the things that comes across in this is we've we've asked people about credible sources of information, and as you would expect, um, uh, but I, I suppose it's just a, a state of where we are in this country. You know, the the political people people's trust of politicians is is at rock bottom um and where people are finding credible source of information is from their friends and family from people they know well um from employees of businesses and and actually the traditional media so mainstream broadcast and um uh, other media still hold a very strong part of that and and the um the newer medias that they're there but they're not up at those levels so i think if you combine the data with what um you're seeing in in your market combine that with what you're doing and the the messages that you're delivering and then thinking a little bit about the channels that you're using to get those messages across you can actually put together a more comprehensive communications program that makes sense for where your business is and where your market is um, in this and the one thing I would say Russ just just as part of this for me the other thing I'm very passionate about is the is the employees as a a a message delivery mechanism yeah of course I think it's hugely undervalued by a lot of corporates I think people are very uh, conscious of trying to create an engaged workforce 
so they want people to be highly productive to love coming to work and they do communications campaigns internally often with great success to create those engaged um, uh, and excited employees but there's a, a further step I think you can take about making those people real ambassadors for your brand both as a, a company and in, in you know individual product and service brands and I think that audience has often been underlooked and what this report for me does is it just cements that opinion more and more and more that customers consumers are taking the opinions of employees very as uh, very high in, in in how they're influenced that when you look at how um, industries are being defined how businesses look after their employees is a very important driver of reputation so it's one of the things i would pick out is it's a hugely important audience and a huge opportunity for people good stuff uh, jim donaldson thanks for joining me on the show no problem uh, we are back after this quick break you're listening to the c-suite podcast to listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csweetpodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favorite podcast apps. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, and joining me now to get into a bit more detail about the UK version of the latest Authenticity Gap report from Fleischmann Hillard Fishburne are two of the key personnel behind it, Nick Andrews, who is EMEA Reputation Management Lead, and Steph Bailey, MD for Corporate Communications. Plus, I'm delighted to also be joined by Simon English, Senior Editor Correspondent of the London Evening Standard. Uh, now, Simon, let's actually start with you, because um, trust and authenticity is a topic I've covered a, uh, a couple of times recently on the podcast but not from the media's perspective so with regards to this whole area of uh, credible communications I'm keen to get your view on it now I quickly looked through some of your recent articles um, that uh, that you'd uh, written um, and you certainly get to the point so bear with me for a minute on this but uh, because I looked at, at two in particular so number one when writing about BT's pension fund uh, running at a deficit of perhaps 14 billion you wrote that BT insists it hasn't yet decided to slash the pensions of 33,000 staff but plainly would like to if it could get away with it and then you said uh, and I quote one of the pathetic justifications for such a move they are all pathetic justifications will be that uh, since new staff get a lousy pension it's unfair to keep uh, coughing up for the old ones although you did caveat that by uh, saying BT wouldn't uh, rephrase it uh, wouldn't phrase it uh, quite like that Um, and then writing about the annual state of uh, play uh, survey from the banker you wrote that the truth about gigantic banks is that they are thoroughgoing menace uh, a danger to us all Um, so you don't mince your words um, so a long intro, but what I was keen to find out is what can companies uh, or, or what do companies need to do to convince you they are authentic or trustworthy? Um, well, for a start, I think they need to they need to take it seriously. It needs to be obvious that they that they have thought about this stuff. So on the BT example that you gave, they were trying to get away with it uh, in terms of the message. Uh, they've got a very serious problem here. Uh, what are they going to do about this pension deficit? And they didn't address it in a remotely authentic way. They just thought, we're going to shove this through. And they were betting that there weren't journalists who have been doing this forever who remember what they said 10 years ago and 20 years ago and who can research what they said 30 years ago. They weren't, their, their reply wasn't authentic. They were, they were trying to get away with it. And, and the message then turned from, we're a company who's got this problem and we're trying to engage with it honestly, to... We're trying to see if we can get away with this. And I, I think that they just they just didn't put enough thought into who their audience was in that in that case. Yeah. A journalist who's been writing about them for a long time. And there are others who who are uh similarly well versed in in BT. I mean 
BT's got a pension deficit, but that's partly because it took a massive pension holiday uh, not so long ago. It stopped paying into the fund. That's why it's got a pension hole. They didn't mention that in their message when they were talking about how they were going to deal with this. So the truth is, they just didn't tell the truth, and right. that is why they got bashed. And is that something that, that you're looking out for, particularly when, you, when you're covering stories like that? Or? I, I think it just, cr- it just crops up. Obviously, I wouldn't say I'm trying to be mean. I just, I just think it's, it, it's more obvious than companies know. My impression is, from my side of the fence, is what happens is that companies ha- have uh, meetings where they talk about the message they're going to put out and they don't think about enough about who's receiving it and how they might receive it sure. and that's when they, they, they fall foul of it Nick, what's, what's your thoughts? I mean they do if they're well advised I would say um, <laughs> Of course you're going to say that <laughs> I think there's an interesting point about the fact that increasingly companies if you like are working out, are working out loud you know, the, the age of being able to do things in secret I think is gone I mean, you have journalists who, whose job it is is to keep tabs on things, which I think is an admirable thing and very necessary. But equally, you've got you know, an enormous amount of information available all the time on the internet, on social channels. You know, you, things are written down and kept forever. You know, the whole sort of yesterday's chip paper is, you know, is, is rubbish now because mm-hmm. it's there. You know, people Google it and statements last forever. And so your opportunity to kind of get away with things... Yeah. And it is very is very limited, and and so companies need to understand that and not try and do it. I mean, we would always argue that that the be- any benefit you may think you're getting by trying to do that is almost invariably o- you know overrun by the fact that you're almost in- you're going to get caught. My my, um, my job as a journalist, possibly the only point of me and my colleagues, is to remember what big companies yeah. like BT would rather we'd forgotten. And to and keep I, people I, honest, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think that, that, that BT, who are actually a perfectly good company, and they've got a very good press operation in general, I'd say, um, don't quite get that that's where I'm, where, how I'm coming at it. And that in terms of authenticity, that's, that's why they've got a gap. Well, that's an, a nice link to bring us back to, to why we're here, because uh, we're talking about this authenticity gap report. Um, Nick, I, I think it's fair to say that you've pretty much immersed yourself in this project. So, um, so let's start with you in terms of, you know, can you just give us a bit more detail about how you, you put the, the whole report together? Yes. So there are a couple of sort of premises from which we start, and then we think about who we actually ask. So we know empirically from a process where we boiled down from over 40 possible drivers of reputation through essentially a regression analysis process. But there are nine drivers of reputation. Um, not eight, not ten, but nine. And um, this, is, this is important because it gives us a model, if you like, through which to look at reputation. And those nine drivers separate into three possible areas. The first one is management behaviours, which are doing right, so it's essentially an ethical score, the kind of thing that gets undermined by companies trying to you know, pull the wool over people's eyes on, on pension. Consistent performance, i.e. is the company doing reasonably well. You know, at the end of the day, we tend to like, to like winners. So your reputation gets strengthened if you're commercially doing well. Um, and credible communications, which is essentially is a company talking to me frequently and do I believe them? So that's management behaviors. The second uh, three are customer benefits, which are quite simply, you know, are, are we delivering value, better value? Are we looking after our customers, customer care? And lastly, are we innovative or seen as being innovative? which is a particular driver for many sectors, particularly now, as we've had expectations of innovation sort of hardwired into us. 
And the last three, if you like, are, 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 are the sort of old-style CSR ones in many ways. They're sort of society outcomes. So that's um, employee care. Do you look after employees? Because people like companies that do. Care of the community, as opposed to care in the community. Um, are, are you looking after the community in which you exist? And that will vary by sector. Obviously, if you're a chemical company, you've got plant. Your community might be people around you physically. But you know, if you're Amazon, what is your community? You know, it, it could be your suppliers. It could be your retailers. It could be a whole host of different, different people. Um, and then lastly, care of the environment. Right. So you've got those three triptychs, if you like. So we take those nine drivers and we look at the difference between expectations that people have of sectors against those nine drivers and then the experience of individual companies within them. And then very quickly, in terms of who we survey, we survey what we call the engaged consumer. So these are not, we search initially for, as opposed to normal research, which is demographically organized, you know, men between the age of 25 and 35, etc. We look at types of people, so the kind of people who are more likely to be engaged in subjects. They read more, they share things, they go out of their way to discover that kind of thing. So it's a personality type, and then we select for areas of interest. And, you know, you can find people who are, you know, enormously engaged and interested and informed about financial services. It takes longer to find them than finding people who are enormously engaged in, say, retail, yeah. but that's what we do. We boil that down to 100 or so per sector from that very large starting point, and that's who we survey for each sector. And, and um, I mentioned to Jim earlier that I have actually read the entire report. Yeah, good um, for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was, good. It was some uh, interesting reading there. Um, but what I did like is how you put all those um, spider maps together to show the, the, the gap in, in terms of each of those drivers and, and it was quite good for me I was flicking through it as a PDF on my screen so you can start to compare you can and I'd encourage works. listeners if they want you to go and, and we'll give a URL at the end but to go and look at them because they are very very visual and you can see from the shapes but fundamentally the spider diagrams allow you to see which drivers are important in each sector because they do vary by sector mm. and then where there are gaps between what people expect and what they actually experience. Yeah. Well, we'll come, we'll come on to the, the detail in a second, but Steph, mm. let's bring you in at, at this point. Um, can you share some of the, the key headline findings that, that came out of it? Yeah, absolutely. So unsurprisingly, given the world that we're in, there is credible communications comes out really low. People do not feel that companies, or they, either they don't believe what they're saying, or they fundamentally do not think they're being authentic, which given what Simon said earlier, I, I think that is indicative of something we're seeing across the board. The other thing that, again, is not really that surprising is this whole notion of value. It's coming out uh, loud and clear that regardless of the fact that we are materially better off, that unemployment levels are low, you know, regardless of what is happening in the world um, amongst many of the countries that we surveyed, still value comes out as a really important driver for people. And value is an interesting one in itself because perceptions of value change from sector to sector. So value is feeling that the product that you get is worth the money that you invest in it, but it also is what the company is doing around that value. So is it the investment they are making in their local community? Is it the fact that they're also giving back to um, investing in their employees, whether that be pensions, as you mentioned? So that comes out as a key driver. And then I would, there's also an overwhelming sense of disappointment. So this is perceptionally very different from when we last surveyed these people. And the disappointment comes from, particularly in the disruptor sector. So we see a lot of 
fintech companies, we see a lot of disruptors uh, across every sector, actually. And the disappointment comes because despite everything that they're saying externally, we're seeing the same bad behaviors come through, whether that be you know, big companies not investing in um, their employees or whether that be a lack of attention to purpose, community. There's a lot of different factors that are driving that, and that is the overwhelming sense that we get with this report. Were there any sectors that performed above average and any that had large gaps to fill in terms of authenticity? It's not really like that because what, we, what we're not looking at is comparing sector on sector. So it's not an intersectoral study because we don't ask the same people. You know, we look for people who are interested or expert on a particular sector. Um, so we don't get to say, you know, what do you think about cars and then what do you think about banks? But what we do find is that different sectors have different drivers, which is quite interesting. So the obvious one, for example, would be consumer tech companies, where innovation is an enormous spur. You know, it drives everything. You tend to find that, that people don't really care about, say, the environment in the consumer tech space. They care much more about innovation. And so you have huge expectations. And in almost all cases, in fact, I think in all cases in the UK, companies don't meet them. And you, we know this, don't we? Because every time a new iPhone comes out, you know, and it's a little bit bigger or a little different colour, we're slightly disappointed that you can't wire it to your cerebral cortex and work it by blinking, you know. And so, and so that that sort of slight kind of uh, is that it mere response is a problem right. for consumer tech companies who need to look at other drivers for their opportunities to differentiate. Simon, does any of this surprise you at all? It, it doesn't actually. No, I mean, I, th- I think it resonates not only with my work but also my life experience mm. and I, uh, what I don't get is why companies would think that it was wise to overpromise so often I mean surely in all of our kind of daily lives and our work it's better to underpromise and overdeliver and they, they do it the other way around it's like you're fibbing to me and or, or you're, you're setting this up for you to to fail and I can't see why that's good especially when you when you when you're dealing with something like a bank everybody's got I've got I've got to have a bank account I've already I'm already sold in a way on what you're selling because I've got to have it and tomorrow night I've got to have a hotel room right Mm. it's not uh, not uh, at some level I'm going to make a choice about where I go but I'm going to have to pay money to somebody for this why would you tell me it's the Ritz when it's not you know and I, and I just don't get what um, you, you know I, I, t- I totally agree and I think you you do see this disconnect between companies and I mean we spend an, a disproportionately large amount of time advising companies to dial down some of their communications where it is not authentic to what they can actually deliver and I, I think for, for us especially it's about you know, it is much better to go out and be completely honest with, you know, what you are doing and what you're doing well. Um, And this is why, for us, the authenticity gap is actually incredibly helpful because we can actually go back to companies and say, well, actually, they don't care about what you're doing with the environment or, you know, with your employees. Their real expectation here is that you have a sense of purpose, that you are actually um, becoming a leader in articulating what you're doing um, that show that you genuinely care and you have, you know, there's value in what you do. And that's a different conversation to have with a client because ultimately you're moving them away from 
just parading what they do to actually prioritizing communications according to the audiences, yeah. which is a different thing. Yeah, and I think one of the differences it seems to me between companies and people, I mean, as people, once you're an adult, you get the uh, you realize that not that many other people care about you that deeply. Mm. <laughs> you know, your friends and close family do, and that's about it. You've got these companies talking as if the whole world were fascinated by their every utterance. People, we're, we're not. It's keep it short and tell us the truth. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. I mean, I think the reason why companies overclaim is because they're desperately trying to differentiate themselves in, in places where um, differentiation is increasingly difficult. And if you, if you take the innovation thing one step forward, I mean, I call it the pixel problem, which is at what stage did you stop caring how many pixels there were in the camera on your smartphone? I mean, I lost interest at about six million. I can't tell the difference. You know, so, so you, know, you find that people innovate to the point of obsolescence, don't they? And they desperately have to, so they have to shout louder about it in order to stand out. Mm. And our conversation is often about the fact that you, know, you can't differentiate anymore on the quality of the room. Because, you know, it's a, as you say, it's a bed, it's a desk, you know, and, and within a large band, it's pretty similar. Mm. But maybe you can differentiate on the way in which you treat your employees, or maybe you can differentiate on the way in which you as a company are seen to be ethically representing yourselves in different parts of the world. You know, these are opportunities to be different and better beyond just the core proposition. Come on, no, I was, ju I was just going to say, what, what's really interesting is, you know, we've, we've all been in this game for far too long. Um, and when I started, it was very much all you had to talk about is the business that you did. You know, it was the products that you sold and you stayed within a very nice little world. And now the expectation is actually, you know, there are no silos anymore. Your audiences aren't just your shareholders or your financial investors. Actually, the general public is just as important. And Simon, in your job, you're almost the voice of the general public. You call companies into account for failing to put the, um, the public's best interests at heart. And I think as good communicators, we need to be aware that the silos that exist within the companies we represent are not the silos that um, we should actually have within um, you know, the way we communicate. The, the, um, Simon, you, you, you picked out two in, uh, sectors uh, earlier, banking and, and hotels, and, and actually I wanted to come on to that because when I read through the report, one of the listings that stood out for me was the expectation of, of customer care in the banking mm. sector got the highest reading across all industries mm. that, that you studied in terms of the, the largest gap. It was 19.3% to be precise. Anything and, over three is a reasonably sizable gap. Right, yeah, so 19 no, is really quite yes, considerable. Yeah, um, and it states that clearly people feel that, that banks are, are paying little attention to, to caring for their customers. I was therefore wondering what you think they can learn from the hotel sector, which scored the highest in terms of actual experience when it came to customer care across all industries. I know, I know you said you weren't really comparing industry yeah, with industry, but, I mean, but is you know, you've, you've got high sort of public interface sectors, don't you, really, where, yeah. where there's supposed to be a relationship between the organisation and the customer. And I think that where you know, the hotel industry has, has, has had to go down the customer care route because it's so competitive. I mean, you know, it takes... The barriers to entry in hotels is reasonably low. The barriers to entrance, to entrance in, in retail banking is really quite high. I mean, you don't get many new retail banks. Um, and so there's a complacency in banking, which I think particularly in relationship to, to the customer, which I think still persists. I mean, you're three times more likely to leave your wife 
or, par- or partner than you are to change your retail bank. So on that basis, it's really hard. This is why they spend so much money getting you in early. But on the Jesuit principle that you get them in early, you get them for life. You know, so, so you know, what, but what that means, though, is that, is that in a world where people are expecting more indiv- individualization, more focus from the people they're dealing with, more flexibility, more accessibility, et cetera, et cetera, which they get in other parts of their life, they get hacked off when they can't get it in their bank. Because as you say, they've already have, they have to do it, but they don't have to do it badly, is that an attitude? Just to stick with that comparison uh, between banks and hotels. So uh, uh, I traveled around a bit a year ago, and I stayed a lot in Premier Inns because they're pretty good mm. and they're cheap they're nice and consistent in and terms they, of they, delivery you know what you're going to get well they began to know me you know they understood me they had a, <coughs> a pattern of my behaviour you want this and you want that and we know you don't like breakfast in the morning you want this it was good bottle my, of Jack Daniels I, I, in the way yeah it, it, <laughs> bottle of vodka first thing um uh, my bank that I've been with for 25 years yeah. every day it's like it's the first time they've ever spoken to me yeah, they've, got, they've got 25 years of information about me and every day they still go can we just you know if they want to have a chat master, yeah. can we just go through who you work for and how much you earn it's like you've got 25 years <laughs> data there yeah. why don't you know me and, and not only is that I mean that is complacency on their part because they I've got to have a bank account and I assume mm. that they're all the same they're 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 hurting themselves because if they had any sense, they could sell me more. But that's a massive yeah. opportunity they could sell for the me banking more, sector, They could sell right? me more stuff. Why didn't they yeah. sell me more stuff? And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a competitive... Uh, you've just given away for free an idea to a retail bank. Just there. You know, make this individualised and oh. people will... You, know, you will differentiate. <laughs> well, we should, we should point out only one... So, again, coming back to the report, only one company in the hotel industry broadly matched expectation of customer care and most fell short by double digits, um, according to your findings. So if that's the best performing sector for the experience, should, that's they a do, concern, But again, you it? s- it's all about... The, the, our research looks at expectations versus experience. Yeah. Most research looks at just experience. Right. So... You know, how so it comes back to what Simon was saying about right. your, your so setting the, the bar, you, your yeah. expectation what, too high. What we have in expectations is a combination of societal sort of views on how things ought to be, and also, but also the cumulative effect of decades of advertising mm. of what people have been promised. There, yeah, and and so you've you, you know you reap what you sow in this world. I mean, our, our definition of, reputa- of, of of authenticity is when your reputation, which is what essentially other people say about you, matches your Marketing, which is what you say about yourself. Do you know what I mean? And so where those two things don't match, where you promise the earth and you deliver considerable, you know, considerably shorter than that, mm. that's a problem. And that's know? why Ryanair does so well, because they promise little. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and, and that's why BA is, you know, is under attack, because of the disparity between the two. Right. Interesting. It's not necessarily the experience is different. The expectations. Yeah. Like yeah. You could have exactly the same experience on BA and Ryanair. Be, be perfectly happy with Ryanair because your expectations are set correctly and be quite disappointed with BA. Mm. Very good. There are a small number of brands, I think, that, that whose expectations are high and they meet them, and they're not necessarily completely high-end brands. I mean, the two I'm thinking of that never disappoint me are Amazon and Charles Turret, the mm. shirt company. Mm. I get a nice shirt two days later for what they said it was going to cost. Yeah. Amazon, when they say they're going to deliver it the next day, they... They, I can't think they've ever let me down, and if they do, they put it right very quickly. And so, it, you know, it, it, it's not like it's impossible yeah. for companies to say, "Here's our message," and, and we met it. It's not. And the question for us is always, and again, from a from a communication perspective, from a reputation management perspective, is is 
twofold, two things. One is whether or not you're meeting expectations. Because as you quite rightly point out, if you do, that's a positive, and if you don't, that's really not. But the second thing is, in what are invariably crowded markets, why should people pick you rather than the alternative? And it's, you know, the, the, if you look at those three sort of sets, they're not weighted equally. Yeah, so the customer benefits ones are weighted higher, but they are always, in every country we've done this and in every sector, they are always less than half of the weighting. So the other six combined are always greater in terms of their, their impact. So, you know, yes, you're spending most of your marketing spend on saying what fantastic customer benefits you bring, but the fact of the matter is there are six other drivers which are often largely ignored, and those are very often the way in which you can be understood as being different. So what is the green smartphone? Tell me. There isn't one, is there? Nobody is saying, like, we're, you know, I, feel, I, I care about the planet, so I'm going to buy a, an X because it has roughly the same features as everything else. I'm going to develop this green smartphone. Yeah. This is my second you know, idea. Is, <laughs> I'm going to take out of this. I'm going to become an entrepreneur. You know, what, is, <laughs> what is the hotel chain that, is, that, that looks after its employees the best? When you think about how many people are employed in hotels. I mean, McDonald's, for example, which is not, this is not something covered in the, in the research, although they are in it. Um, you know, McDonald's has, over the years, with the McDonald's University and so on and so forth, they've built up actually a very good reputation for looking after people. And on the zero contract debate, they offered all their employees, I think I'm right in saying, to, to, to come out of zero contracts. Although, actually, interestingly, many of them declined to do so because they like the flexibility. But nonetheless, you see, that's an organization which is thinking about its employee care driver and trying to do the best it can with it. McDonald's is quite an interesting company. They're almost, in a way, they're almost the, the other side of the authenticity gap. Mm. They're better than people think they are. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And what we find, it's that. interesting, and we, we, when you look at the thing, you do have, for want of a better term, positive gaps. Because if you, the way it works is that we ask people for their expectations of the sector, and then we take eight brands per sector or companies per sector, and we ask them what their experience is of each of the companies. So it's a bit like the NHS in the UK, isn't it? If you ask about the NHS, they'll say, oh, the NHS is rubbish. But then you say, well, how was your hospital experience last week? Oh, no, that was very good. Doctors were great. Nurses were really nice, etc. So you have a general expectation of a service, but an individual experience of excellence. So you find that in other, in, in, you know, within the research as well, where we have, you know, it may be that in a particular sector, we don't expect it to be particularly doing right. It's not held in, a, in, in high esteem ethically. But one company that you've come across, you think, actually, no, they're an exception. So there, there will be a positive. And well, that, well, this is why disruptors are doing so badly, because expectations against them are so high. Hmm. They're, they're expected to kind of transform these very traditional sectors. But ultimately, the reason why they're falling short is because they're only concentrating on the product that they have. Then they're completely ignoring all the other factors that influence reputation. So just coming back to uh, one of the things you were saying there about expectation on, on sectors, one of the sectors we haven't touched on yet is the energy industry, and that scored very low marks for care of the environment, mm. had the largest gap for that particular mm. driver. That doesn't su surprise me in any way. Is it, it, what's your thoughts It on doesn't that? surprise me because I think that you know, it's, it's obviously an area, a responsibility which energy companies have. And they, are, they represent, if you like, the physical manifestation of concerns about climate change in the same way that perhaps cars would also do. So you, you, you are going to have a lot of baggage around that issue, which is going to sort of end up being put at the door of the energy companies. You know, if you are, unless you are a, a sort of 100% renewable 
based energy company, you're going to run up against disquiet that people have about, about fuel at the end of the day, whether it's nuclear at one end, which, you know, wins on the carbon front, but loses on the scariness front, if you like, or it's coal, which wins on cost and loses because it's terribly polluting. So, you know, wherever you are on the, on the sort of continuum of energy companies, you're going to tick various concerned boxes, and that's going to set expectations up, I think. The energy industry is um, yet to come up with a way to talk about itself. Yeah, agreed. In, in, in ways that people can, can relate to, yeah. and they, they just struggle to get away from this notion that they're this massively profiteering uh, bunch of, you know, oligarchal uh, maniacs. They're not really... Um, and the profit margins in the energy, energy industry aren't that high. I think it's 6% or something. So supermarkets, it's 4%, which is low. Energy, it's that 6% profit margin. It's not, it's not massive, and they have to invest the whole time mm. to, to keep the lights on and, uh, you know, and uh, the, the, the houses warm. And they, they don't seem to be able to explain themselves in such a simple way. They're talking about other stuff that nobody can understand. No. And you, I mean, interestingly, I think one of the interesting sort of unintended consequences of opening up the energy market so people could buy their energy in lots of different places was you then sparked off a massive advertising war which is which then means that all your messaging is around giving you a service or managing your you know the way you use your energy or whatever it may be to the detriment of talking more sensibly about what energy companies are for you know how they make their money what's the difficulties of making money i mean there is a that you said something very interesting right at the beginning simon about BT having a problem and not talking about the nature of the problem and companies don't like to talk about the fact that often business is quite hard you know there are hard choices to be made it's not a perfect world it's not a perfect science doing business and often they're wrestling with some quite serious problems but they don't like to talk about it because somehow that suggests weakness and difficulty our view is is often that actually if you don't explain to people why things are hard then you get no credit for overcoming it when you do because people just assume it was easy. But also you could say that the general appetite for hearing about the challenges that businesses face is very low. Mm. People just want the solutions. They just want the, you know, there is this tendency to just want things much easier because we've been fed a promise, because we've, you know, existed on this kind of um, food of advertising for so long that we don't want to hear the hard stuff. We don't want to hear that climate change is happening. We don't want to know that investment is needed, otherwise the lights will go out. I mean, this is an industry that has had these issues for a long time, but no one wants to listen. And I think that's their biggest challenge. I think what you, I just agree with everything you said. I think you're right. Um, the other issue that strikes me is that uh, the way that businesses tend to talk about themselves is in this sort of macho way, whereas you were saying they're just going to conquer the world and they don't want to start at the beginning and say well and, and also they don't want to they don't want to be human so uh, the best business people the business people that come over best when they're talking to people like me are the people who tend to downplay it they tend to say yeah i know we had a great half year but next year's going to be a lot harder hmm. and and you can you can do it as gently as that and then guess what next year oh, actually we did all right we got around it and then suddenly you think this person is is not bullshitting me they and it brings it back true. to the expectation that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. But, yeah. but it also brings it back to who is actually talking on behalf of businesses. And, you know, the research clearly says that people don't want to hear from CEOs because the trust in senior level executives is really low. 
and companies would do better in getting other employees. And you, you only have to see what happened with Southern last week with the Ask Eddie and the, you know, the great response that they got from having a very authentic you know, work experience guy take over their Twitter channel. Now, it was pretty unexpected, and I don't think this was planned at all. But do you think... I'm going to start asking questions, sorry. But no, do go you, for it. Do you think <laughs> that the media is somewhere to blame? Because when you come to us as communication professionals, you ask for the executives, you ask for senior-level people, and when we try and you know, field anyone more junior... There's generally a lack of interest. I think, I think you're right. I also think that the media is doing itself a disservice then because what happens is we insist on having the top guy. Yeah. Uh, you insist on briefing him to the point of tedium. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, yeah. then what he says is boring. Yeah. And then we have to find some negative angle somewhere else. It would Don't say that. I interviewed Jim earlier. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but I, mean, but you, you, I think you're absolutely right. And you end up with this sort of vicious sort of circle of tedium which nobody benefits from. Even worse than tedium, it's jargon that nobody understands and everyone turns off and that's half of the reason why you get this, you know, people not believing because they can't understand. It's not in layman's terms. Well, let's pick up the right. So some of the stats that came out of your report, it says when... um, when asked what sources of information people find most credible when sorting facts from fiction about a company, only 7% said they find the leaders of the company most credible, with 34% saying employees and people who work in the company are most credible. Yes. We, we asked people to pick two. So that's why if you look at the report, they don't add up to 100%. Yeah, sure. So people were asked to pick the two. And the two that, that came up um, highest, and actually this was the same in all the countries we did it, which included Germany, U.S., Canada and China, apart from China, which trusts the media more than than we do. But ge- generally, the, the top two in all of those countries, countries, countries apart from China, were employees and then knowledgeable friends and families, mm. uh, family members. And there is a very interesting, I think, question, conundrum for companies about the extent to which you cede a little bit of control for a lot of credibility. Because you know, it may be that actually what people want to hear f- about if they're talking to a pharmaceutical company is not the CEO droning on about meeting you know, objectives and hitting shareholder value. What they want to hear about are bench chemists talking about you know, what they're working on or production managers talking about the fact that they've really managed to nail safety in the factory or salesmen saying that it's very interesting over the last five years demand for various things have gone up or down or patients or whatever it may be there's a whole infrastructure of interesting people around pharma which is a fascinating industry in a subject that's arguably of most interest to everybody which is their personal health and yet we end up with droning CEOs and you know, media trained to the wazoo and, and with, with no interest at all and I think there is a there's an opportunity to as I said right at the beginning to, to work out loud to open up Companies yeah. to other people so that the employees can talk. But well, the downside is is, 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 yeah, is that you can't media, tra- you can't just you transfer your control. media training yeah. from, from your CEO to yeah. these people and end up with the same level of tedium. I, I think we are talking a different thing though than the, the whole Ask Eddie thing is still not going to paper up. Well, you know, it's very nice and you can tell, you know, yeah, yeah. answer the oh, questions. You it's not going to paper over the, the, it's not. the, the issues with the trainers. That's no, right. No, that, that and we would, always say, we would always say to companies, you can't communicate your way out of operational problems yeah. at the end of the day. If you are screwed up operationally, you are screwed up. You know, fix it. You know, we can help, ex- help you talk about how you screwed it up, 
but we can't fix it for you through communication at the end of the day. Well, that's not our role. Okay, so, so again, leads nicely onto a question I wanted to ask you, Steph, in terms of the advice that you're giving clients. How are you using these reports and, and the findings that, that have come out from the Authenticity Gap report with, you, with your clients? I, th- I think it's firstly, you know, how do you gain competitive advantage in a very crowded market? Um, so understanding the stories or the the information that's going to be important to your audiences based on things that are beyond your control. So because I deal with corporate, so I deal with B2B communications, for me, it's not about the product. It's not about value and, you know, innovation, that story. It's more about, okay, for example, if you start talking about the fact that you're an employer that invests in its employees and start talking about that story then that will meet your customers' expectations. And, in, you know, we're doing this program with one of my clients that I haven't asked to name, so I won't name. But it's, you know, positioning them as a company of first choice because they do a lot of work in this area and it really makes them stand out from their competition. And as a result, they should be getting kudos and that will actually chime in with their audiences. So it's an easy thing for them to win on. Yeah, I'd say there were t- two things, really. One is that... The challenge that companies have with reputation is it's a very amorphous concept. You know, you can't go and buy a kilo of reputation if you're lacking in it and sort of chuck it in your reputation bank and there you go. You know, so clients grapple with this. You know, what do, and, and so the nine drivers are a very useful prism through which to look at one's reputation. So it gives them something they can work with. And the second thing is what we set out to do with the research was to, was to have actionable insights, was to give us stuff to work with with our clients and remember there's no ideal reputation this is not like you have to be excellent on every driver that's not how it works it, it there's a question of what is my business model what is my business model and does my reputation allow me to be as effective when applying that business business model as i could be and if i'm not a value retailer then the fact whether or not i'm delivering value on the drivers is completely irrelevant you know if i'm not if i am but if I am handicapped by the fact that I can't employ great people because my employee care driver is, so, is, is not meeting expectations, that's a problem. And so what this enables companies to do is to look, about, look at where they're investing, their, their communication spend, their activity, how they differentiate themselves, whether or not they should be dialing up or down and dialing down certain things in order to match their business plan and so on. And that's a useful management decision based on data. I think... Um the main thing they should do is just is just talk about themselves more succinctly. If they just could discipline themselves to say in a tweet, here is everything we are about. And what happens in companies, they would take that tweet and turn it into a thousand words. They turn it into a thousand pages. Yeah. And I, I just think if they could think about themselves in much shorter t- words, the, the point you just raised about, about the value issue and you know, don't claim you're a value retailer if you're not. I mean, I could never run a somewhere Waitrose endlessly fought this battle of trying to pretend that they could be as cheap as as I mean they're not and that's not where they are so conceivably you could do a basket of goods if you bought a very limited range of items and come out as cheap as that but that's not where they are why are you fighting that battle Waitress is where you go when you've got a few quid or where you go for some value or where you go to treat yourself because you want some some nice food and I just couldn't understand why they were complicating their message Interestingly, I was in a waitress clearly because I adhere to the snob value. But the um, the other day, and on the wall, because they're part of the John Lewis partnership, 
is a poster behind the tills that says, we are owned by our employees. And I thought that was very interesting as a sort of public pronouncement, because that's going for a different driver I mean, to the value. Why do they make more of that? Yeah. I mean, John Lewis does, mm. But, mm. but they never kind of say. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. We've been talking about the UK finance review report, um, and you touched on, on this earlier in terms of the other uh, regions that, that you're looking at, and, and I know you haven't released those findings yet, but we have, we have an international... Yeah, well, we've got an international audience to sure. the show, so I, was, so I was just wondering if there's any snippets of data that you, that you can um, share that, or that we can expect to, to see, or you know, maybe at least you know, comparing some of the drivers across those regions, maybe. Well, I could say a couple of things. One, what, by doing this in different countries, you, you discover that there's no such thing as a global reputation. You know, it's, expectations are very different in different countries in the same sectors. Um, and you know, not unsurprisingly, that drives the way in which companies ha- should, should communicate. Um, you do find national differences. So the Germans, for example, are very concerned about, about the environment, um, about employee care. You know, there's, a, there's a green element hardwired into Germany, into its politics and so on, which comes through in that data, which is quite validating in some way. And they also deliver against value, which, yeah. Yeah. you know, perceived value, which is, which is very interesting because obviously um, who they are, like in terms of the investment they make in the products that they actually create, mm. I, it doesn't surprise me that Germans do well in that. Mm. Whereas the, the, the China, for example, there are quite low expectations but nonetheless they fail to even meet those in what we would call the care categories so care for the customer care for the employee and care for the environment so you've got again you've got some quite interesting national differences which if you are a global company is quite sort of sensible to, to know I think right. I, w- I want to come back to the, the topic we were talking about with um, the uh, trust that people have in, in spokespeople so we talked about you know not so much on the CEO and more in terms of the, the employees. W- what does the report tell us that we value most in, in the actual corporate leaders there? Well, I think the, it's important to look at what corporate leaders most represent and fundamentally where they are fielded, if you like. They are, they are talking on behalf of the company as a whole. So you're not, they're not normally bigging up the, prof, the, 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 the product or the service particularly. They're talking about the company. So the three management behavior things are most important and fundamentally I think at the moment it's the doing right stuff so it's a, it's an are they is there an ethical voice ethical corporate voice in a world which in, is increasingly skeptical about corporates and I think that there are very few leaders and this is a courage issue I think that are prepared to put the, stick their neck out and say you know this is right or wrong and if you look at for example the you know remember the United case quite recently of dragging a septuagenarian doctor off a plane which if you had to pick somebody to drag off a plane that would not be my top choice but the the fact of the matter is it took several goes for the ceo to come out with a statement that this was appalling and it should never have happened which was really the first the first place but it's that was the right thing to say in the right voice just too late mm. but it's that kind of reassurance that people are looking for from the top people because if not them then who They're also looking for more. So if you look at on the society, you know the societal um, drivers. What's interesting is it's no longer enough just to meet regulation. They they want companies that are delivering above and beyond. So, for example, purpose is a word that is often banded about, but just telling people that you are delivering against common goals, that's not good enough. 
you actually have to say how you're differentiating in this for people to listen and to believe. So that's quite difficult for a company. I think um, companies expect way too much credit just for not breaking the law. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you get no, yeah. no points of compliance. I mean, that, yeah, guess yeah. what, you know. Well done. It's, it's, like, yeah, it's, like, it's, like, it's like saying, well, I, you know, do you know I haven't robbed a bank today? So you have been well done. <laughs> or beaten anybody up. It's been a good day. You know. Okay. Um, I, I want to sum this up because we've, we've uh, talked for quite, quite some time on, on, on this and covered you know, a lot of the, uh, lot of the issues um, and, and various different sectors. But, um, and, and you may well have given some of these answers already. But I, basically, quick summary, mm. what I'm after is a practical step or a tip from each of you that companies can, can take to be more credible. So Simon, let's, let's go with you first. Yeah, I've got one, actually. It just, it just occurred to me. Uh, having had lunch with a lot of FTSE and other bosses, quite often you have a lunch and maybe have a glass of wine and they relax, and you think, you're all right. Mm. Be like that when you're doing your results presentation. They get shoved into boxes, and they don't go off script, and they look stiff and inauthentic. And then when you see them in person, you think you're really not so bad. Why don't you just be more like that? No one would, no one would punish you for that. Very good. That's tip number one. Nick, let's come to you. I think that's excellent. I agree with that. The, I would say take the time to understand your reputation. Whether or not you're covered in the report, look at the nine drivers, get people in the room, and think, how are we doing against those nine, do we think? Because if nothing else, asking yourself those questions will cause you to think analytically and critically about your reputation rather than just sort of managing it by accident. And managing anything by accident is dim. I, I would say look beyond your executive le leadership. You know, look to your employees to tell your story because they're more likely to be believed and also because they're more likely to be interesting and have stories that will surprise people. Excellent. Um, so final question, obviously, is uh, where can our listeners go for more information and, and get a copy of the report? You can go to our website, which is www.fhflondon.co.uk, and there'll be a big button marked Authenticity Gap. Perfect. Uh, Simon English, Steph Bailey, and Nick Andrews, thanks for joining the show. And of course, thanks to uh, Jim Donaldson for taking the time to chat to me earlier. That's it for this 50th episode, but don't forget you can listen to all previous 49 shows at csweetpodcast.com. Plus, you can subscribe to the series on SoundCloud, iTunes, and TuneIn by simply searching for the C Suite Podcast. And if you're on iTunes, please do give us a positive rating and review um, if you've liked what you heard, of course, um, as that helps us up the business charts. Uh, you can also join the discussion around the show on our Facebook and Twitter groups, which are linked from the website. And finally, if you if you want to get involved in the show in any way, you can contact me on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith or you can use the contact form on the website. Thanks for listening and goodbye.